You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, yes, hello, good afternoon. Uh, today's reading is chapter 10 of Acts. Uh, it's a bit lengthy, so bear with me as we read together. But it's in Bibles, there's some at the end of our um, rows, and it's behind me as well. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice called to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Go, get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you 
may I ask you sent for me? May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism of John that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believed who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Good afternoon, everyone. This is picking me up, I think. Awesome. Uh, my name's Aaron, if I haven't met you. I'm one of the pastors here at GPC. Uh, there's a copy of that Bible passage on the online welcome card that Stu referenced earlier, so you can trace that uh, via the Sundays tab on our website. There's an outline of my sermon there, if you're the sort of person who finds outlines useful. Uh, and what is useful is we need to pray for God to help us. Uh, so please, let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, in this time, as we gather around your word together this afternoon, that you would show us just how wide and broad and uh, free and inclusive you are, uh, and that the offer of the good news of Jesus is. In his name we pray. Amen. Why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? Maybe you've heard that question before. Uh, when I was studying uh, philosophy at university, uh, many of my classmates and lecturers were downright offended when I said that I believed that the only way to truly know God was to believe in Jesus. To them, that was just downright offensive. 
narrow-minded, bigoted, exclusive. Why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? Uh, the other night, Gabby and I had a, a new friend over for dinner. It was a wonderful night. Uh, we were getting to, getting to know one another. I uh, found out that she'd grown up going to Catholic schools and Catholic church. Uh, and she said to me, it, it wasn't long before I realised uh, that this whole thing just wasn't my shtick. That's exactly the word she used. Uh, why? Because it was just too dogmatic for me. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've thought this sort of thing before yourself. Why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? And, of course, there's a sense in, in which Christianity is exclusive. Right? As Christians, we do believe that the only way for, for someone to have eternal life, to be accepted by God, uh, is to trust in Jesus. We've seen that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no other name than in the name of Jesus. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? And yet, in another sense, Christianity is the most inclusive religion on the planet. Because as we'll see in today's passage, Christianity says no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be accepted by God and his people by believing the good news about Jesus. That's expansive and inclusive and free and broad, you see. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can be accepted by God and his people by believing the good news about Jesus. This is the inclusiveness of the gospel. So let's take a look at this passage. First, in verses, chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, uh, you'll see that God gives Cornelius a vision uh, telling him to summon Peter. Uh, but before we get into kind of verses 1 to 8, I, I did just want to touch on chapter 9, verse 43, where we left off. And so if you've got your Bible open, take a look at what Luke says in chapter 9, verse 43. Uh, he says, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time uh, with a tanner named Simon. And we all say, well, that's just really exciting, Aaron learning about where Peter accommodated himself while he was in Joppa. And, of course, it's like Luke's doing a bit more than just telling us where Peter stayed. It's significant where Peter stayed. He stayed with a guy who was a tanner. What do tanners do for a living? Tanners uh, spent their days working with dead animal bodies. Uh, that was something that a devout Jew would have considered to be ceremonially unclean. That's a bit of a kind of Bible jargon term, ceremonially unclean. Uh, you, you might not know what I mean when I say that. Uh, when I say ceremonially unclean, I'm referring to the laws uh, that God gave to his people through Moses, uh, mainly in the book of Leviticus. Uh, you can read them uh, later on. Uh, the, the rules about clean and unclean aren't exactly the same as the categories of sinful and righteous. They're slightly different categories. For example, someone could be considered to be ceremonially unclean because they've done something sinful, of course, but they could also be considered to be unclean because they've done something kind of neutral or even something good. That's a bit, maybe a bit strange for us to think about, but here's just one example. In Genesis chapter 1, God said to humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? Male and female, what are you to do? You are to have babies. You're to fill the earth. And yet when we get to the clean and unclean laws in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18, 
a man and a woman, after they have sex, right, the, the very act that they have to do to obey God's command, the man and woman are declared to be unclean, at least for the rest of the day. So the categories of clean and unclean aren't exactly the same as sinful and righteous, which is important because it tells us that Simon wasn't doing something sinful to work with dead animal bodies as a tanner. But as far as the Jews were concerned, he was in the category of unclean, someone who was unfit for the presence of a holy God and unfit to be a part of God's people. So isn't that interesting? That before Peter gets all these uh, revelations from God, it already seems like he's a bit open to spending time with people uh, that his own people, the Jews, would have considered to be unclean. Here he is staying in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. Anyway, so chapter 10, verse 1, Luke's camera shifts. You know, imagine he he moves from Joppa and zooms, zooms in on Caesarea. In Caesarea, there's this man named Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier a centurion, so he's a pretty powerful guy in charge of 100 people, a century of people, uh, in the Italian regiment, which was about 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers, based in Caesarea. So what's Luke telling us right up front from chapter 10, verse 1? Cornelius is not a Jew, he's a Gentile. Cornelius is in that camp of people who were unclean people who were considered to be unfit for the presence of God, unacceptable to God, not able to be a part of God's people. Although Cornelius isn't just any Gentile, if you look in verse 2, take a look in verse 2, he and his household are described as God-fearing. What does that mean? It means that Cornelius and his household had rejected all the so-called gods in the Greco-Roman world. You know, they had a whole kind of pantheon of gods. But they'd rejected those gods because they'd been persuaded that the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, was the one true God. He was the God that they truly feared and respected. And that's Cornelius and his household. And you'll see there that they give expression, Cornelius in particular gives expression to his commitment to the God of Israel by giving generously to the poor in Caesarea and by regularly attending the Jewish synagogue to pray. It seems in one sense like Cornelius is an insider. He's a part of God's people. And yet, Cornelius hadn't been circumcised. In this day and age, that was the outward physical sign of actually becoming a Jew, actually becoming a part of God's people. So Cornelius and his household were still considered to be outside the people of Israel, excluded from all the blessings of being a part of God's people. Cornelius and his household were unclean. So that's the scene for verse 3 where Cornelius is praying at three in the afternoon, probably a a traditional Jewish time for prayer. He's praying. God gives him this vision. Uh, He sends a a vision of an angel to Cornelius, calling out his name, Cornelius, uh, in verse 4. It's not every day that Cornelius sees an angel in his prayers at the synagogue, so he's a bit startled. Uh, He says, what is it, Lord? Uh, So the angel says to him, verse 4, your prayers... Uh, and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Right? Cornelius isn't yet a, a kind of full member of God's people, 
but God is pleased with his generosity to the poor and his prayers. Now, you might have questions about that. You can talk to me later on. Uh, but at least God is pleased because these are a sign that Cornelius really is seeking after the one true God. He really does want to be a part of God's people. And so God's going to make arrangements for that to happen. In verses 5 and 6, he tells Cornelius uh, to send for Peter, who's staying in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. Uh, and in verses 7 and 8, that's what Cornelius does. Just think about these first eight verses of chapter 10. I hope you can see how inclusive God is. Who is it that sends this vision to Cornelius? It's God, right? Who is it that sends one of his angels to Cornelius to give him this message to summon Peter? It is God. Because God is eager for people of every nation to be included into his people. He's not exclusive, saying that my people is just the Jews. He's saying my people is to be made up of people of every nation on the planet. God is radically expansive and generous and inclusive. So in chapter uh, chapter 10, verses 9 to 23, uh, it's no surprise that God's also preparing things on the other end. He gives Peter a vision, uh, a vision which basically teaches Peter to stop making a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, If you look there in verse 9, you'll see it's about noon the next day. Cornelius' servants are on the way uh, to to Simon's house in Joppa. Peter goes upstairs uh, at around noon to pray. Verse 10, I guess because it's nearly lunchtime, Peter's getting hungry. Uh, He's upstairs, maybe in the sun. You know, he falls into a, a bit of a trance while he's waiting for lunch to get ready, and while he's in this trance, verses 11 and 12, he receives a vision like Cornelius had. You see the vision, it's a a large sheet being lowered down from heaven. This sheet is full of all different kinds of animals. Uh, In particular, Luke mentioned, four-footed animals, birds and reptiles, which to us, reading as predominantly, I assume, non-Jewish people in the 21st century, uh, is just random, right? Like, Why mention this weird mix of animals in a sheet being lowered down from heaven? But for Peter, it made sense. Well, in one sense, it made sense. Peter was a Jew. He was familiar with those laws about clean and unclean foods in the book of Leviticus. And according to the laws in Leviticus chapter 11, uh, the animals in this sheet being lowered down from heaven were a disgusting mix of clean and unclean. This was like the most disgusting platter of food that you could ever imagine. Think if you had some cheese, some worms, uh, some snails, and a bit of mud. Right? That's to Peter, that's what's been lowered down from heaven. It's disgusting, unclean stuff that as a devout Jew he would never have eaten from. And so what's the go? Verse 13 a voice from heaven says, Get up, kill. And eat. You see in verse 14 that the Peter recognizes the voice from heaven as that of Jesus. He calls the person Lord. Why is Jesus telling him to eat from this kind of disgusting buffet that's been lowered down from heaven? And not for the first time, you might remember in the Gospels, Peter sometimes gets a bit indignant with things that Jesus suggests. 
Uh, So likewise here in verse 14, he says, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But look at verse 15. Jesus says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. you, Peter, to disagree with what God says. God has made all foods clean. You can read Mark chapter 7 later on if you like. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares all foods to be clean. That's partly what is being referenced here. God has made all foods clean, so Peter should just get up and kill and eat with freedom, with joy. But it's clear from verse 16 that the vision isn't mainly about satisfying Peter's appetite. He'll have some lunch later on, I'm sure. But this is mainly because, you know, the sheet comes down three times, the command is given, then the sheet goes back up to heaven, leaving Peter a bit confused and still hungry. At that same moment, verses 17 and 18, the Cornelius' servants arrive, they're knocking at the door, crying out, is Peter staying there? We've got to get this guy, Peter. And notice verses 19 and 20. God's Spirit tells Peter to go with Cornelius' men without hesitation. Do not hesitate. Those words could uh, maybe be translated as well as uh, don't show partiality or don't make distinctions anymore, Peter. So how does that vision about the food and going with Cornelius' servants, how do those things fit together? The point is that God is saying to Peter, just as God has made all foods clean, I'm not making a distinction anymore between clean and unclean foods, therefore Peter shouldn't hesitate to get up and kill and eat the food that Jesus has brought down from heaven. In the same way, God has made all people clean, not making any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So Peter shouldn't hesitate to get up and go with the men that Jesus has sent up from Joppa. You see, don't make any distinctions, Peter. Eat the food that God has said you can freely eat. Go with these people who God has said you can freely go with and share the gospel with. So that's what Peter does. Look in verse 21. He agrees to go with Cornelius' men. And there's a little note there that's pretty incredible in verse 23. It's a a little bit of a journey. They've first got a rest. And so Luke tells us that Peter invites Cornelius' men into the house to be his guests. It's an incredible moment of hospitality. Peter, a Jew welcoming these Gentile servants of Cornelius into the house to stay as his guests, to eat with them, to talk with them, to share stories with them. Again, you see in this section just how inclusive the Christian God is. It's God who gives this vision to Peter. Who is it that appears to Peter in the vision? It's Jesus, God's son speaking to him? Who is it that prompts Peter after the vision to go with Cornelius' men? It's God the Spirit. God, Father, Son and Spirit working together to what end? 
that people of every nation would be included into their people. This is how expansive and generous and inclusive God is. It's how inclusive the gospel is. The gospel is for everyone. And Peter gets that. So in verses 24 to 33, Peter enters Cornelius' house without hesitation to spend time with a group of Gentiles. I take a look in verse 24. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gathered a whole crowd of people together. Now, Cornelius has had this vision. He's been asked to send for Peter. He doesn't know exactly what Peter's got to say. But he does seem to know that there's going to be something of real spiritual significance. He wants all his family and friends to hear what Peter's got to say. Uh, It's also clear that it's significant for Cornelius. He's a bit kind of revved up. You see what he does when Peter arrives? He throws himself at Peter's feet, almost worshipping him. It's a little bit of an awkward moment. This is the first time Cornelius has met uh, one of Jesus' apostles in Peter. Uh, And it's a bit of an embarrassing moment where Peter just says, stand up. You know, that kind of worship is not for me, it's only for Jesus. Uh, This could have been a moment where Peter said, man, these Gentiles just don't get it. And yet, after that awkward moment, in verse 27, we reach really a a climactic moment. If you were reading this story uh, as a first century Jewish person, You'd be like, what is Peter a Jew doing entering the house of Cornelius a Gentile? Chapter 10, verse 27. That's a massive threshold to walk across. So massive because of verse 28. Look at what Peter says there. He says to this crowd, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, I don't think there's any explicit law in the Old Testament that says that a Jew is forbidden to visit or associate with a Gentile. Uh, In fact, uh, if you wanted to, you could look up the kind of Greek word behind what Peter uses for law here. It's probably more like a custom or a deeply held tradition. So I think what Peter's saying is that by the time he's speaking to Cornelius and his household, the Jewish people had distorted the wonderful truth that God had specially chosen them to be his people out of every nation on the planet. God had specially chosen them, but the Jews had distorted that to be an argument for them being superior to everyone. Not because God was blessing them, but because they were Jewish. They were inherently better than everyone, especially the Gentiles, because of their Jewishness. The Jews in this day and age had a deeply held racial and and social prejudice towards the Gentiles. One that excluded them, that discriminated against them, that made uh, deep divides and distinctions between Jew and Gentile. It's the sort of racial and social prejudice that we've seen in other parts of the world throughout history. Uh, Tragically, it's the sort of racial and social prejudice we've seen in our own country, right? In the way that many have treated the First Nation peoples of Australia. As we meet here in the AAL, that's appropriate to remember. This is the kind of 
deeply held social and racial prejudice, Peter says, exists between Jew and Gentile. So where does Peter get off? What's motivated him to step across that divide? Look in verse 29. Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God has shown Peter that Jews and Gentiles are not in different spiritual categories. It's not that Jews are inherently clean and Gentiles are unclean, but that everyone is unclean. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is impure in comparison to a holy and pure God. Everyone needs to be made clean by God through Jesus. God has shown Peter that. Uh, in verse 29, Peter says uh, that he came, and so he came to visit Cornelius and his household without any objections. He was willing to come, although he doesn't know exactly why they've asked him. So Cornelius explains, we won't unpack that, in verses 30 to 33, before he asked Peter to speak. So take a look at verses 34 to 43. Peter shares the good news about Jesus, the gospel with these Gentiles, because he's convinced that the gospel is for everyone. In verse 34, first, Peter points out that God doesn't exclude anyone from his people on the basis of external appearances. I now realise, Peter says, how true it is that God doesn't show favouritism. Which is literally that God doesn't favour people, doesn't judge people, on the basis of what they look like on the outside, their external appearance. We do this all the time. We make judgments of people and include or exclude people on the basis of what they look like. Peter says God doesn't do that. God doesn't exclude anyone from his people on the basis of what race they are or what ethnicity they are, on the basis of whether their hair is long or short or in the middle or they've got no hair. God doesn't exclude people on the basis of whether they've got piercings or tattoos or in Peter's day whether they're circumcised or not or whether they observe a particular set of religious rituals on the outside or not. God does not exclude people on the basis of their external appearances, the stuff that they go through the motions of on the outside. And on the flip side, verse 35, God, uh, doesn't, uh, God uh, accepts or includes anyone into his people uh, who believe the good news about Jesus. Verse 35, God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now remember Peter, a Jew, is speaking to a group of Gentiles. I think what he's not saying to them is you guys don't even have to become Christians and God will accept you because God just accepts everyone. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, you don't have to become Jewish for God to accept you. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to observe all these rules that the Jewish people have observed. But you simply, God accepts people from every nation, Peter says, who fear him and do what is right. And I think it's no accident that verse 36 goes on to, to explain the good news about Jesus. The heart of doing what is right is not obeying a particular set of rules, but rightly responding to Jesus, believing the good news about Jesus. 
I also notice three things about verse 36. Real quick, three things. Uh, The first thing in verse 36, if you look at that, uh, is that God sent the good news about Jesus first to who? To the people of Israel. There is still a sense in which the Jewish people are God's specially chosen people. So they were the first to hear from Jesus and the apostles the wonderful good news of the gospel. Secondly, in verse 36, notice uh, what the good news of the gospel is. It's about how we can be at peace with God and others. Uh, Sometimes people might think that Christianity is a set of good advice or tips for all sorts of things that you can do to be more at peace with God and other people. That's the best it gets, a set of good advice. Uh, But that's not what Peter's saying, is it? He's saying it's good news about not what we do, but about what God has done in Jesus so that we can be sure that we're at peace with God and others. And notice that this good news about having peace with God is available to everyone. Notice the end of verse 36. Because Jesus isn't just Lord of the Jewish people, he's Lord of all people. Remember, Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm Lord of everyone, Jesus says. Therefore, go to everyone and make disciples of all nations. It makes sense to call people across the planet to believe that Jesus is Lord because he is Lord of everyone. So in verses 37 to 39, having established that the gospel is for everyone, Peter shares the gospel, or 37 to 43. First, uh, the gospel we see is about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So first, Peter shares the good news of Jesus' life. Notice verse 38. The good news of Jesus' life uh, is seen in Jesus being anointed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, going around doing good, uh, performing miracles amongst the people. And notice that Jesus' miracles, according to Peter, aren't just lovely stories or myths that he's made up. At the end of verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything that he did. You see what Peter's saying? He said, many, many people, including me, saw Jesus in the power of the Spirit going around doing good and performing wonderful miracles. What was the point of the miracles? Well, in part, it was to give people a taste of what Jesus' kingdom was like. It was to point people to the fact that that in my kingdom, the hungry will be fed. In my kingdom, the sick will be healed. In my kingdom, those who are oppressed will be set free. Those who are victims of injustice will see things set right. Those who are paralysed will be given new life. Jesus went around giving people a taste of his kingdom. The wonderful goodness and healing and peace that was available through knowing him. This is the good news of Jesus' life. Uh, And at the end of verse 39, uh, Peter shares the good news of Jesus' death. They killed Jesus, Peter says, by hanging him on a cross. The same people who had the privilege of seeing Jesus going around performing these miracles are also hung him on a cross. Sometimes we might think, you might think, 
well, if only I'd seen Jesus do all those incredible things, then I would believe in him. And yet some of the people who saw Jesus do the most incredible things were still blind to who he was. They hardened his heart to who he was. And they were more keen to get rid of him by killing him on a cross than follow him. And notice how Peter describes Jesus' death. He says they hung him on a cross. Now that word cross is actually just the word tree or or pole. Uh, And that's important because it tells us something about the kind of spiritual significance of Jesus' death. It's not just that Jesus died a painful death and it's a great example of loving sacrifice. In the Old Testament, anyone who was hung on a tree, typically outside the camp of Israel, was thought, was said to be experiencing the full curse of God's judgment. So when Peter says Jesus was hung on a, hung on a tree in our place, he's saying that Jesus' death on the cross is about changing places. It's about substitution. It's about Jesus in his death on the cross bearing the full curse of God's judgment upon sin in our place for all the sins that you and I have ever committed. Jesus bore that in our place so that if we put our faith in Jesus, we not only escape the full curse of God's judgment, but we experience the full blessings of God, freedom and forgiveness and peace with God and acceptance into God's people. This is the good news of Jesus' death. And then there's the good news of Jesus' resurrection, verses 40 and 41. But God raised Jesus from the dead, Peter says, on the third day and caused him to be seen. Of course, the people who killed Jesus probably thought they'd won. They'd finally got rid of Jesus. They'd defeated him. But Peter says, but God raised Jesus from the dead. And notice that God wanted you and I sitting here today, the day after the grand final in 2022, he wanted us to be sure that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So what does Peter say that he did? He caused Jesus to be seen. Why? Because God wanted there to be eyewitnesses, lots of eyewitnesses who would write down their accounts of seeing Jesus raised from the dead. Peter says, it's not, it wasn't anyone and everyone, but it was people like him and the other apostles who ate and drank with Jesus after God raised him from the dead. Are the people that, God, uh, that Jesus sent into the, into the world as his witnesses, uh, verse 43, verses 42 and 43, to declare the good news about Jesus and to urge people everywhere to believe in Jesus' name and be forgiven of their sins. And it's a wonderful moment in verses 44 to 48 because that's what the Gentiles do. They believe this good news about Jesus that Peter's just explained and they're accepted by God and his people. Uh, Take a look in verse 44. The Gentiles receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're reading this, it might be a little bit jarring for you. Luke doesn't tell us explicitly that everyone there believed the message that Peter has shared. Just kind of jump straight to them receiving God's spirit. Uh, But we do know from chapter 11, verse 1, that they received the word of God. And so you can uh, take a look at that later on. 
as those who'd received God's word and believed the good news that Peter shared, they received the gift of God's spirit. It's a clear sign that they're being accepted into God's people. God gives his spirit to those who are his, to those who have been cleansed of their sins on the inside by the power of the spirit, to those who are now not unclean but clean and fit to be a part of his people. So notice verse 45, the Jewish believers who tagged along with Peter, they're astonished that Jesus would give his spirit even to Gentiles, to the impure and unclean. How could that be? But they know these Gentiles have received the spirit for two reasons, two evidences, right? The first is, uh, you'll see there in verse 46, that they're speaking in tongues. Now, you, you might have questions about what is speaking in tongues, why don't I hear people doing it today as much as it's sometimes talked about in the Bible? All of those questions, happy to talk about them later on. But two things to note here. The first is uh, that just because these Gentile Christians spoke in tongues when they received the Spirit, that doesn't mean that every Christian will do that. Right? We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that when Christians receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, they receive all sorts of different gifts. There's not one gift that every Christian receives. Uh, so that's the first thing. And uh, the second thing is that God knew that it was extremely important for these first Gentile Christians to speak in tongues. Why? Because that's what the first Jewish Christians who received the Spirit did in Acts chapter 2. They received the gift of God's Spirit and they spoke in tongues. So God didn't want there to be any opportunity for a Jewish Christian who'd received the Spirit and spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2 to say, oh, see, you Gentiles are still inferior. Yeah, you kind of received the Spirit, but you're not as good as us. But God wanted it to be really clear. Jews and Gentiles are equally accepted into his people. And so they receive the Spirit, they speak in tongues, they also praise God which is something that only a heart, that uh, the heart of someone who's truly been renewed by the Spirit would do, giving God the praise and honour that he deserves. Uh, so notice verse 47. Uh, These the Gentile Christians have clearly been accepted by God into his people. They've received the Spirit. So in verse 47, uh, Peter says, well, if these Gentiles have received the uh, the baptism of the Spirit, right, the kind of internal sign of being a part of God's people, uh, then Peter sees no reason why they shouldn't also be baptised with water. That's the external sign of being accepted into God's people. Right, sometimes we, we read over these verses, I think we don't get just quite how dramatic they are. An incredible moment where these Gentiles have been included into God's people that God's grace uh, was never just for the Jews, but was always supposed to overflow to people of every nation on earth. And this is the first taste we're seeing of that. But given how deep this prejudice is of the Jews towards the Gentiles, uh, how will the other Jewish Christians respond? Uh, we don't have time to uh, fully unpack uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. You'll see there in verse 1 that the Jewish Christians have heard these reports that the Gentiles have received the word of God. And in verses 2 and 3, you'll see that they're really not happy about it. 
Uh, they're criticising Peter. They're downright angry that not only did Peter, they've heard these rumours, you know, that, that Peter not only entered a Gentile's house but ate with them. What on earth is Peter doing? Uh, so Peter's coming back to them to give their report, give his report. Uh, and thankfully, after Peter's explanation in verses 4 to 16, uh, the Jewish Christians join him in praising God. Uh, they see that God has accepted these Gentile Christians into his people So who are they to stand in God's way? They join Peter in praising God. So I hope you can see that uh, just how radically inclusive the Christian God is. Uh, That from this passage, a reasonable summary is no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be accepted by God and his people by believing the good news about Jesus. Now, that's pretty easy to say, I think. If you've been around church for a while, um, you probably would have no qualms about the idea that the gospel is for everyone. No one is excluded. The Christian God is radically inclusive. Probably tick, tick, tick. Everyone believes that. But I wonder if we do believe it sometimes or how deeply we believe it and how would we know if we believe it. There's no kind of you know, magic test, I'm not going to bring everyone up here and kind of put them under some spiritual x-ray machine to see if you actually believe it or not or do myself. But maybe a litmus test is if we say that the gospel is for everyone, are we willing to share the gospel with everyone? Peter was challenged by that, wasn't he? On one level, he wasn't willing to share the gospel with everyone because of his own pride. There were certain people that he thought he was better than that he was superior than, that that somehow were beyond the grace of the gospel, that didn't deserve the gospel. His pride was a blockage to him sharing the gospel with everyone. I think we experience that too. There are certain people that we might think, "Uh, yeah, they're too far gone. I don't like them much. I'm better than. I prefer them to experience God's judgment rather than his mercy. On the other hand, Uh, Peter might have been tempted to not share the gospel with people because he knew what the response was going to be from other Jewish Christians. They were going to be angry. They were going to criticise him. They weren't going to like him anymore. We too can struggle with that. We can think, I know the gospel is for everyone, but I also know that if I share the gospel with these people, some of my Christian friends aren't going to be pleased with it. They're going to criticise me so, so how is it that we get past our own pride and fear of what other people think so that we can match up our confession that the gospel is for everyone with a life where we actually share the gospel with everyone? Again, there's no silver bullet, but I think it, it's just by reflecting on and speaking about and encouraging one another with the very gospel that we're seeking to share. Because what does the gospel tell us? The, the gospel says that we were so unclean and impure and kind of filthy in our sin that we couldn't clean ourselves up. So messed up in our sin that Jesus, the holy and glorious Son of God, had to die for us on the cross. There was no other way that we could be made acceptable to God, cleansed of our sins. No other way. What does that do to someone's heart? It should humble us, right? 
it should make us accept that we're not better than anyone that we might be thinking to share the gospel with. We have no right to think that we're superior, do we? Every reason to be humbled and basically no reason to be proud. And yet the gospel also says that Jesus saw us in our filthiness spiritually, our impurity, our mess, and he loved us. He pursued us. See, he gave his life for us on the cross to cleanse us and wash us clean and make us fit for God's presence. What does that do? If you know the love of Jesus, the glorious Son of God, in that way, if you know that no matter what anyone else thinks, Jesus loves you, he approves of you, he accepts you, if you know that, then you'll be far less concerned about someone who might criticise you for sharing the gospel with someone else. Someone who might be angry with you because you've broken into new territory to talk to someone different about Jesus. So I pray that, I've been praying this week, that we as a church would be a church full of people whose hearts are so humbled by the good news about Jesus and so secure and emboldened by the good news about Jesus that we would be a truly and radically inclusive church. Inclusive in the sense that we would say to anyone and everyone that no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be accepted by God and his people by believing the good news about Jesus. No one is left out. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. But aside from that, everyone is welcome. Radically inclusive. Right, let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how uh, expansive and generous and inclusive you are uh, and how expansive and generous and inclusive the good news about Jesus is. That no matter who we are or what we've done, uh, we're not excluded. We can be accepted by you and your people by believing the good news of Jesus, your son. In his name we pray. Amen.